today's sermon is going to be less exegetical and more practical. Less exegetical and more practical. Those of you who have been trained to believe that that's wrong, I don't know what to tell you. It's not necessarily wrong. You've just been trained to think it's wrong. Uh, Jesus and the apostles didn't necessarily preach exegetically in the way that we often do at church. They, they, they taught on topics. They taught on scripture. They taught on ideas. They connected the two. And so what we're doing this spring at Park, we're primarily preaching through the book of James. So the last three Sundays we've been in the book of James. But with the first Sunday of each month, we want to take a spiritual practice and kind of unpack that. In fact, as we exegetically preach through the book of James, if you remember, if you were here last week, James chapter 1 said, be doers of the word, not hearers only. And it's my, it, it's my belief that especially in the American church that we've become very accustomed to hearing, to hearing, to hearing. And our hearing outpaces our doing. And so what we want to do this spring is not only just listen to the word, but we also want to talk about some practical ways that we can grow in the word. We want to work on our spiritual practice. And so last month we looked at Bible reading. We talked about the spiritual practice of Bible reading, and we gave you resources and tools to grow as a studier, a reader, a listener to the word of God. This month we're focusing on feasting and fasting. And just as, a, just as an example that... It's true that we hear more than we do, that we know more than we do. How many of you know that the Bible teaches or at least gives example of people fasting? Put your hand up nice and high. How many of you fast regularly? I'm going to put my hand back down. I don't. All right, I'm going to do it again, and I want you to look around, and there's no shame in this, right? It's a little bit of vulnerability, no shame in this, but just be honest. How many of you know that the Bible teaches you to fast or gives example of Christians fasting? Put your hand up nice and high, look around. All of us. How many of us fast regularly? Put your hand up nice and high. All right. Far fewer, right? Thank you, those of you. There's no pride. Like, we don't think you're being proud. By putting your hand up, you're being honest. Thanks for doing that. But do you see the difference there? All of us have heard about fasting. All of us know that Scripture gives example of fasting. And I would say, I I saw three hands go up of people who actually practice fasting on a regular basis. And so what we want to do this spring is we want to help build holy habits in our church family, holy habits so that our doing becomes more in line with our hearing. Amen? Good thing to do as a church? All right, so that's what we're going to do. And so as we transition from the month of January when the focus was Bible reading into the month of February where the focus is feasting and fasting, we're actually going to practice these two kind of in connection together this morning. I'm going to ask you to fast for the next hour. Can you do it? Until communion. Would you fast with me until we take communion? Great. Those of you who brought snacks, just keep them in your bag, keep them in your pocket. You can have them after the service. What we're going to do is actually just have some longer reading of Scripture because the month of January was about Bible reading. One of the traditions of the church is to have public reading of Scripture. And because we were just coming out of COVID and we didn't know what things would look like with gathering, we didn't plan like a night and evening of the public reading of Scripture. Um, but, but that's a practice that we didn't do that I wish we would have done. And so I'm going to have my wife, Brittany, come up, and she's going to read some longer, extensive passages in Scripture. So just the public reading of Scripture, that is a biblical practice that we need to grow in. She's going to read some longer passages in Scripture about fasting. And so we're going to connect the two, and we're kind of going to hand it off from Bible reading into fasting. And so I'm going to ask you to sit this time. Usually when we read Scripture, we stand, but they're longer passages 
So I'm going to ask you to sit as we read them and just listen. You can follow along as Brittany reads these passages, or you can just sit, close your eyes, and take in the Word of God auditorily. Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare it to my people, their transgression, to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Matthew 6 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. 
Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Thank you. All right, so this morning we're looking at feasting and fasting. A quick word about feasting. It's good and we should do it. Amen? God has given us food and he's given us fellowship. He's given us family and friends and he calls his people to gather and to eat together. What a great gift. And that is a holy thing. Throughout Scripture, there's feasts and feasts and feasts. There's more feasting in Scripture than there is fasting in Scripture. And so I don't want to do a deep dive on feasting because we do it, right? How many of you have some kind of feast plan this afternoon? You're watching the Super Bowl and you're eating wings or nachos or whatever. Now, oftentimes we disconnect that from a spiritual activity. But remember, when you gather with people, whether you're watching the Super Bowl, whether you don't know what the Super Bowl is, whether you could care less... When you eat with people, try and remind yourself, this is a holy gift from God. I'm actually observing a biblical commandment as I meet and as I eat with others. But we do that culturally, so I'm not going to spend time talking about that this morning. I'm going to spend time talking about fasting, because you saw that three people out of, maybe there's 80 people here today, public math is hard, uh, I don't know what percentage that is, but it's a very low percentage, right? Right? So, there is a big difference between what we know about fasting and what we practice in fasting. And so this morning, I want to focus on fasting, asking these two main questions. What is fasting and why should we fast? What is fasting and why should we fast? We're going to look at a ton of passages this morning. So, if you have a Bible, make sure it's open. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the, pew Bible, in the pews. You can use that to track along. I want you to see what God's Word has to say about fasting I'm going to make some comments on it as we go, but ultimately I want to look at Scripture and understand what is fasting and why should we fast. First question, what is fasting? I've defined it for us here as I consider what I see in Scripture about fasting. Fasting is the practice of giving something up, primarily food, for a period of time to focus on the spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental health of yourself and others. And we're going to go through some Scripture and we'll see how this plays out in Scripture. But what you need to know, just as we start here, is that fasting is a practice of giving something up, and it's primarily food. Historically and biblically, it's food. Many different religions of the world and many different groups of the world fast. This is not a uniquely Christian practice, but it is a very spiritual practice. And it does have uniquely Christian roots and a uniquely Christian, um, we'll see this as we go, but, it, but it is a, there's a unique call for Christians to practice fasting. But it is something that's universal, and it's simply the practice of giving up something for a period of time, primarily food. Now, I say primarily food because in our day and age, a lot of people practice fasting of different things, like fasting from social media. That can be a gift to your soul. I did that this last week for the most part, and it was so good for my soul. And still, even with giving up social media, this morning, as I was in my office getting ready for the sermon, I got a notice on my phone that said, on average, this past week, I spent three hours and 34 minutes per day on my phone without social media. What was I doing? And so we can give up other things other than food. We can give up screen time. We can give up social media. We can give up certain drinks. We can give up certain kinds of food. We can 
fast from sugar, we can fast from caffeine, we can fast from alcohol, you can fast from sex, you can fast from different things, and it's really good for your soul. But the primary thing throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the world is to, to give up food for a period of time, and the purpose is to focus on spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental health. And a lot of times when people start to practice fasting from food, they worry a lot about their motives. Like, well, I don't want to fast to lose weight because that's not the point. And and I just want to remind you here that God, in his wisdom, has tied our minds, our bodies, our spirits together, that, that our spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental health are all interconnected. And so don't worry as much about motives of like, and and it's good to check your motives, it's good to pray through a fast. Primarily, the most important reason for us to fast is for our spiritual health. But our spiritual health is connected to our physical, our emotional, and our mental health. I'm not a fasting expert. I've started messing around with it the last couple of years because I've been convicted that there's a lot of things in the Bible that I know that I don't do. And so I'm trying to grow in this practice myself. And what I've noticed as, as I play around with fasting, I notice that actually when I start to take control of how I eat and what I eat and when I eat and be more disciplined with that and start to feel physically better, something happens in my soul. I feel spiritually healthy if I'm also feeling more physically healthy. And so I want to remind us that these are all interconnected. Now, we're going to talk about fasting a lot this morning, and I want you to know that this is not an expected thing that you need to just, from, you know, today, if you have Super Bowl plans this evening, you're like, well, now I feel guilty eating at the Super Bowl. Don't feel guilty eating at the Super Bowl. Maybe try fasting from breakfast tomorrow, or lunch tomorrow, or dinner tomorrow. Like, slow your way into this. And all of us have different physical limitations. Some of us have health issues. Some of us have body issues and have had eating disorders. And so go into this with a lot of care, a lot of prayer, conversation with other people who know you and trust you. I'm not giving you this sermon, and we're not going into fasting as a spiritual practice as a church for the month of February with the expectation that we would all do the same thing in the same way. I want you to see the glory of fasting. I want... There's two types of people in this room. Some of you need to see this as an expectation from Scripture, and then you will do it. Just That's the way that you're wired. You like to be told what to do. Others of you, you don't like to be told what to do. So you need to see this as an invitation from your loving Father to get closer to Him. All right? Same thing. So however you're wired, if you need to hear this as a command, an expectation, you must do this. Well, I can't even say you must do this because it's not required in Scripture. But it is expected. It's implied. And so if you need to hear that kind of harsh word like, this is what God expects of you, hear that. If you need to hear it as, this is what God is inviting you into so that you could be closer and more intimate with him, hear that this morning. They're both true. We fast primarily from food to focus on the spiritual, physical, and emotional and mental health of yourself and others. This is key. In our culture, Even within the Christian subculture, but a lot of other religions, fasting is purely for you and God, right? Or it's you and your higher power. It's you and this inward spiritual soul connection, and and that's a part of fasting. It's you and God, and it's, it's revealing some things in your own soul, and it's doing some work and some healing in your own soul. But Christian fasting also has others in mind. Christian fasting is not self-serving and self-seeking, just me and God, me and God, me and God. It's me and God, and then how does this 
vertical relationship between God and I turn horizontal and have an impact on others. That's what Isaiah 58 was all about. As Brittany read Isaiah 58, if you go back and you look at Isaiah 58, you're going to see that God was angry with Israel because they were fasting. They were, they were focused on this pious relationship with them and God, but they were neglecting the widow. They were neglecting the orphan. They were neglecting the sojourner. They were neglecting the refugee. They were neglecting the poor. And so fasting, it has this vertical dimension, you and God, and this internal dimension where God's revealing stuff to you and in you about yourself, but then it must have this horizontal biblical fasting, Christian fasting has this this outworking where it causes you to move towards others and to care about others and to care about the poor, to care about the broken, to care about the vulnerable. So that's what fasting is. Next, why should we fast? This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Why should we fast? Fasting is beneficial for all people, but especially for God's people. Like I said, it's amazing how many religions, and actually Christianity in America probably is less practiced in fasting than most other religions. Take Islam, for example. They have the month of Ramadan where they fast every day for an entire month. Now, there's a way to fast when it's legalistic, but there's also this, this, this healthy rhythm to fasting that I think the American Christian, the American church, ought to tap into. Fasting is beneficial for all people. I mean, medical science, physical science will tell you there's a lot of research that says giving up some meals here and there and getting more water into your diet and less food and better food, but then taking fasts for periods of time has great health implications. A lot of studies will say it actually minimizes the, the chance of cancer. It, it actually helps your, your, hearth, your heart health and your cholesterol. And um, just from my own little practicing of it, I've found that there's so many health benefits. And as I experience health benefits, my soul and my spirit began to be lifted out of the drudgery that was 2020. I don't know about you guys, but in 2020, I spent a lot of time eating junk and sitting on my couch and wishing the world would change. And as 2021, as we turned into 2021, I kind of went into the new year because I'm one of those people that's like, it's a new year, I'm going to create a new self. It always fizzles. February 7th, I'm still, I'm still going all right this year, but, but I came into the new year with a little more resolve, a r- little fresh perspective, and I've started playing around with fasting, and I just can't tell you how good it's been for me. Because it has benefits for all people, but now particularly for God's people. And I want to look at, there's, there's eight reasons, there's a lot of scripture, so stick with me. We're going to go pretty quick, but I want you to see these. Because I want you to grow in this discipline for your own soul's good and for the neglected people around you. And again, we're all wired differently. Some of you have diabetes and fasting will look different for you. So just hear this glorious invitation from God and then start to figure it out together. We're going to be putting out resources to our church. If you go onto our website, we have an entire resource page of fasting resources. If you're in a community group, we're encouraging community groups to practice fasting together this month, to try giving up TV for a week, try giving up social media for a week, try giving up food for a week, try giving up caffeine for a week, some different ways to do this. But I want us as a church to actually grow in this practice. And here's why because it's beneficial, especially for God's people, for you and I. A couple, 
couple reasons why it's beneficial. Number one is it's just an expected practice for the people of God. I said earlier that, that, that it's not commanded. Fasting is not commanded in Scripture, but it is expected. That's kind of a unique territory to be in, isn't it? God gives us a lot of commands. He gives us a lot of laws. He gives us a lot of thou shalls. Fasting is never a command, but it's just expected. And it's all over in Scripture. If you think about Scripture, Moses, the man used by God mightily to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, he fasted for 40 days. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, he fasted for 40 days. Jesus, the Messiah himself, before his earthly ministry started, he fasted for 40 days. King David fasted and he called for national fasts for Israel. Queen Esther fasted as, she, as God used her to save the Jewish people. Daniel fasted. Nehemiah fasted. Ezra fasted. Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, they had corporate fasts and national fasts and their leaders would call for them to fast in certain times and seasons. If we consider the New Testament, again, I already mentioned it, Jesus fasted for 40 days. And he taught his followers how to fast. If you, if you caught it, when Brittany read Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. That seems like an expectation, doesn't it? He doesn't say, you must fast, and when you do, don't be like the hypocrites. But there was this common cultural practice among the Jews and now the early followers of Jesus that, that it was so expected. He said, when you fast, here's how you do it. Again, not a command, but such a common practice among the people of God that it was just an assumed reality that they would fast. It's expected. Paul, when he had his conversion experience, Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christians, met Jesus, Jesus met him, knocked him off his donkey or his horse and blinded him and he became a Christian, a God-fearing Christian known as Paul the Apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Before he started his ministry, as he met God, he fasted for three days and for three nights. And the early church fasted regularly. You'll see this in the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that they're pursuing God through fasting. So that's one of the reasons why we should fast is that it's just an expected practice for the people of God. Secondly, it afflicts our flesh and aligns our whole self to God. Let that word sit with you for a second. It afflicts our flesh and aligns our whole self to God. We don't like the word affliction. We don't want affliction. We want to avoid pain. We want to avoid trial. We want to avoid discipline. But this is biblical here. Scripture tells us to afflict ourselves. To afflict, it means, to, it means to, to bring down, to humble, to deny ourself. Fasting is a way that we deny the cravings of our flesh. We, desire, we, we, we deny the wants of our flesh and in doing so, we align our whole self. This is, again, where the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, spiritual are all connected. It brings our whole self underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at Leviticus chapter 23 with me. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. This is God's word to the people of Israel, to his people in the Old Testament, for how they're to observe the Day of Atonement. 
This is also in Leviticus chapter 16 if you want to cross-reference it, but I like how it says it here in Leviticus chapter 23. The Day of Atonement was the day when the the high priest would sacrifice the, the goats as a propitiation and expiation for the sins of the people. This one day set apart before Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb, they would actually sacrifice a lamb and this blood would be shed for the forgiveness of the sins. And here's how they are to act on that day. Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves. Afflict means to deny, to suffer, to, to humble. Afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And part of afflicting themselves was fasting. They, they would feel the weight of their sin in their body as their bodies grew weak and miserable because they longed for food. They would abstain from food and they would present a food offering to Yahweh. Verse 28. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. And you shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, those of you who aren't as familiar with the Bible, Jesus came and fulfilled this law. So when he says that this should stand throughout the generations and shall not move from your dwelling places, we don't have to legalistically observe the Day of Atonement in this way any longer. But notice what is happening here in Scripture. God is saying, I've given you this day as a day of rest, as a day to not do anything, as a day to, to, to unplug from all of your normal duties, and a day to afflict yourselves, to actually feel in your body the same toil, the same pain that your sin causes between our relationship. And there's something connected between the spiritual, the mental, the emotional, and the physical. And as we afflict our flesh, as we actually engage our flesh in holy worship, we align ourselves in a different way to God. I mean, how often is our spiritual act of worship mental? We think, we read, we think, we read, we think. How often is it emotional? We sing and we feel, we sing and we feel, we sing and we feel, we sing and we think and we feel, we read and we think and we feel. All great, good, glorious things. But, but our spiritual act of worship also ties into the physical state of our body, our mental, our emotional, our physical state. And so God is saying, afflict your flesh. And as you afflict your flesh, you align yourselves more wholly. You align your whole self, your whole being to who God is. We can't divide the sacred and the secular. We can't divide the physical and the spiritual. They're connected. And self-denial is a beneficial art that we must relearn. Especially in the culture that we live in, which self-satisfaction and self-gratification is our highest value, right? Our, if you watch the Super Bowl today, pay attention to the commercials, because you'll see a few funny ones. But pay attention to how every ad is, is to give you what you want, to help you discover what you want, to help provide for you what you think you need. I mean, our, our culture is values self-gratification. 
If I want sex, I can get sex. If I want to change my gender, change my sex, I can change my gender. I can change my sex. If I, if I want to eat this, I can eat that. If I want to drink this, I can drink that. No consequences. Who are you to tell me who I am? I was born this way, or I can evolve into whatever I want to be. The heart of it is self-gratification. And it's, it's interesting and ironic that the religions of the world practice fasting for self-denial, and yet we kind of move from that into this culture of self-gratification, self-acceptance. And so as we, the people of God, practice fasting, as we practice afflicting our flesh, denying ourselves, it reminds us that there's good gifts of God to be had in denying the cravings of our flesh. Thirdly, we fast to why we fast? We fast because it heightens our senses in worship, prayer, and reading. It just does. There's not a great verse to go to where it makes this obvious and clear. I'll just tell you from my little teeny experience with fasting, and for those who I know who have fasted more often than I have, some sages who have gone before me in the Christian faith and who have actually devoted themselves to fasting, they all say, when you, when you learn how to do this, when you build a rhythm or a habit of fasting, it heightens your senses to God as you worship, as you pray, as you read Scripture. You hear God's voice more clearly. You experience His presence, His joy, His grace, His discipline. All the things that you need to experience from Him, you experience them more readily, more clearly. It heightens your senses as you do life with Him. Fourth, we fast because it's a way to implore God to speak or act. Implore is just a fancy way to say to seek or to beg. As we fast, this is a way to implore God. It's a way to beg God. Yes, you can beg God. You can plead with God. You can seek God with earnestness, with tears, with pain, with angst, with all of your emotions. God wants you to seek him with all of you. And fasting is a way that we implore God to either speak. God, I haven't heard you for years. You seem silent. I read my Bible and there's nothing there for me. I read my Bible and it's in one ear and out the other. I go to church and I listen to the pastor talk and talk and talk and talk and I, and I feel nothing. I podcast and I listen to sermons and I feel nothing. God, God, I'm trying to make a big decision about life and I don't know what to do. You're not making it clear. Fasting can, can work alongside all those other things that you've done to help make God's voice more clear. It's a way to implore him to speak and or act. God, I need you to rid my neighborhood of this sin. I need you to rid my church of this sin. I need you to rid my heart. I need you to deal with this issue in my marriage, in my workplace. God, would you act, would you act, would you act? And fasting, biblically speaking, is a way that we implore God to speak or act. Now, you need to know, God reveals himself to us he doesn't cave to our manipulation. So fasting isn't a way to manipulate God to get him to do what we want. Fasting is a way that we align ourselves with God so that he makes his will and direction more clear to us so that we align ourselves to his will and, and he reveals his will to us. It's not a way for us to get God to do what we want. But there is this interesting relational dynamic between humans and God. God is sovereign yet humans are responsible. God is God, yet he's chosen relationship with us. 
And so there's this weird dynamic. I want you to be careful that you don't fast to try and get God to do what you think he ought to do. But there is this thing in scripture, and I have one example here that we're going to look at, Ezra chapter 8, where actually fasting and, and heartfelt prayer, God loves it. I don't know if it's that we change his mind on things, or if it's just that like a father loves hearing his kid and loves interacting with his kid, that God loves to hear it. Well, I'm a parent of three kids. I can tell you that when my kids ask in a certain way, or when they do something that I've told them to do, it makes me really happy. And I think when we do something that God has given us for our good, it just makes him happy, and we're more aligned with him. So look at Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, it's on page 395 in the Pew Bible. In the book of Ezra, the people of God, the Israelites, are back from captivity in Babylon. They're back in the holy city of Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 8, the book of Ezra is concerned with them rebuilding the temple. And then the book of Nehemiah, the next book, is concerned with them rebuilding the wall in the holy city. But there's a lot of sin for them to deal with and to wrestle through. Look at Ezra chapter 8 and see how, how they implore God to speak and to act with fasting. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God. See how fasting afflicts us? It humbles our flesh before God to seek him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the army on our way. These are the exiles returning to Jerusalem. They didn't want to ask the king to help them. I was, I was ashamed to ask the king for the band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the army on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and for the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Do you, do you see this? He's like, I can't ask the, the pagan king now for help, because I already told him that God will protect us. And if I ask him for help, he's going to be like, well, I thought God would protect you. So Ezra here, he, he calls a fast. Verse 23, so we fasted. And implored our God. That means to beg, to seek, to ask, to cry out. We implored our God for this. And he listened to our cry. Isn't that amazing? They fasted as a way to implore God to act on their behalf. God protect us from the armies that would surround us and otherwise overpower us. And God heard them. Again, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, did God hear them because they asked? Did they understand God's will for them because they fasted? I don't know. There's some mystery there. But what I do know is that fasting is a way right here and throughout scriptures, it's a way for us to implore God to either speak or act. Flip over to Acts chapter 13 to see this in the New Testament. It's on page 921 in the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 13 the early church, after Jesus had ascended back to heaven and filled them with the Holy Spirit, says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananean, the member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You see how clear God made his answer to them? He spoke. 
They're, they're this early church, this new church, this church planting church. They, they want the gospel to expand. They want churches to be planted. And God, we need workers. We need missionaries. We need church planters to go out. Who would you send out? We're all willing, but none of us know if we should go or stay. Should we be the senders or should we be the goers? We don't know. And so as they're fasting and praying, verse 2 says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Do you see how their fasting and their prayer was tied to just imploring God, God, make this clear to us. When you're coming up on a decision in your life, a vital decision, who should I marry? Maybe spend a few days fasting and imploring God to reveal it to you. When you're, when you're debating which, which church you should be a part of, which career move to make, which whatever it is in your life, consider fasting as a way to implore God to, to speak clearly to you and to act on your behalf. Fifthly, we fast because it helps guide our repenting and our lamenting. Throughout Scripture, fasting is connected to both repentance, turning from our wicked ways, turning from our sin and turning back to God, and lamenting, mourning over the effects of our sin and the sin of others. So when our culture is, is spinning out of control and we see the effects of sin all over our culture so clearly, so obvious in the last year, how many of us fasted and mourned over the negative effects of sin in our world. This is a biblical response. As we become aware of the sin in our own hearts, we ought to, yes, repent from it, confess it, admit it, turn from it. We ought to lament the effects of our sin in the lives of others. And fasting is a way to pair these together. Flip back to Ezra. Look at Ezra chapter 10, verse 6 with me. Again, as the people are now back in the holy city of Jerusalem and they're about to rebuild the temple, they had to deal with their sin. Ezra chapter 10, verse 6 on page 396, it says, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jenahohanan, the son of Elishabab, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. The exiles are the people of God who are in Babylon, they haven't yet returned or they're in the process of returning and there's faithlessness. The people of God have turned their back on God. The people of God have acted in ways that aren't in line with the ways of God. Sound familiar? It's true of every one of us that we act in ways that aren't in line with the way of God, that we do things that aren't in line with the way of God. And then corporately, this is true too, it's true on an individual basis, in this past year, a lot of people got into a lot of stink about like, well, are we really supposed to repent of the sins of other people? Like, sure, maybe our ancestors were slave owners, but I'm not, so therefore, what do I have to repent of? Actually, you're going to see in Scripture that fasting, repenting, and lamenting has this corporate outlook. Ezra, he's mourning, he's fasting over the faithlessness of the exiles. As a representative, he's saying, God, our people, my people, the people that I'm a part of, they haven't been faithful to you. And so he's repenting and lamenting over the effects of their sin. Flip a few pages to the right to, me and I, to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. Again, this is the exiles in Babylon. They're coming back to the holy city, Jerusalem. Nehemiah is going to lead some of them back, and Nehemiah is going to lead the rebuild of their city wall. 
But before Nehemiah gets to action, he fasts to repent and lament the effects of sin. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Now, Nehemiah, in context here, the first couple verses, he's, he's in exile, and he hears a report that the city wall of Jerusalem is torn down, that God's people are vulnerable because their city wall is not built up. And so he's distraught because of it. God's people are vulnerable. They're hurting. He says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And then he goes into this great prayer, repenting of the sins of his people, lamenting the effects of sin. But do you see his first step there? Even before he says, all right, we got to rebuild the wall. we got to build the church. we got to plant churches. we got to advance the church. we got to get new community groups. we got to make more disciples. we got to reach the lost. we got to care for the poor. we got to care for the broken. He pauses, and the first thing he does is to fast, to repent of sin, even the sins of other people, and to lament the effects of those sins. Flip over to Nehemiah chapter 9 with me. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and this is as they're about to get to work, as they are working on rebuilding the wall. It says, Now on the fourth day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, there's something weird in the American church where we think that we always need to gather to just rejoice, right? I want it to be encouraging. I want it to be upbeat. I want to feel good when I come to church. That's good, and that's right, and it should happen. But let me tell you, our culture in the American church is far too weighted that way. And the people of God over and over again would gather in fasting and in sackcloth, so come to the Ash Wednesday service on February 17th, Wednesday night. Maybe we'll give you some sackcloth on the way in and you can get some ashes on your forehead. Come fasting. It says, and with earth on their heads, this visible sign to say I'm afflicted, I'm humbled before God. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners. And now this doesn't, this I have to pause here because of the culture that we live in. This doesn't mean that there shouldn't be interracial marriages or, or different countries or nations or immigrants living amongst each other. There was some horrific sin of God's people, the holy people of Yahweh, shacking up with people of other nations who worshipped other gods, and, and then they were taking on their gods and worshipping their other gods. I just feel like I need to say that for those of you who don't understand the full scope of Scripture. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and, and listen to this, and they stood and they confessed their sins, personal, confessing their sins, what they're guilty of, what they've done wrong, and the iniquities of their fathers. Those of you who think that we have no reckoning to do for what our ancestors have done, you're wrong. It's just right there in Scripture. They confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Because we are a corporate people, and God moves among us in a corporate way. And so keep this in mind, that fasting is to be paired with our repenting and our lamenting. It helps to guide our repenting and our lamenting. Next, fasting, it helps to reveal our worldliness and renew our hunger for holiness. 
as you begin to fast, whether it's from food or screens or, or some kind of substance, as you begin to fast, God will use that giving up, that self-denial, that affliction to reveal just how worldly you are. Why do I reach for my phone? I, I told you I fasted from social media for the most part this week. I think it was just Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and so far today. I can't tell you how many times I grab my phone and I like hit my Facebook or my Instagram app and I was like, oh, that's right. And like, just out of habit, worldliness, boredom. I'm like, I just want to look at what other people are doing. Make some judgments about them. Because isn't that what we do on social media? In four days of not looking at social media, I've realized how worldly I am as I'm just bombarded with this stuff. And how this person posts this and this person posts this and I judge them for that and I judge them for this and I interpret this and I interpret that and it's just worldliness and I've given up for four days and in those four days I've become so much more hungry for holiness, to be like God, to think like God. I'm not trying to give myself an example. I'm terrible at all this stuff. Four days I've noticed that, that fasting, when I've given up food or drink, it's revealed to me just how how fleshly my cravings are, how worldly my cravings are. And then as you press through some of those cravings, as you press through some of that worldliness, it reveals to you, are you hungry for the world? Are you hungry for creation or hungry for the creator? Hungry for God. Hungry to be like him. Hungry to be transformed by him. Seventh, we fast because it protects from becoming enslaved by what we enjoy. Now, God has given us good gifts to enjoy. Food is good. Drink is good. Friends are good. The internet, social media can be such a good tool to be enjoyed and used for his glory. But what I've found for myself is that the things that I enjoy, I tend to start feeling entitled to them. And then over time of feeling entitled to that good gift that I enjoy, I start to become enslaved by it. Coffee, for example, that's a neutral one, right? I could give you some other examples. I'm going to go with coffee because it's neutral. Coffee's a good gift from God. Can I get an amen? I love coffee. I've done some different fastings from coffee over the past couple of years because I, I drink probably two pots a day. So good and so needed. And when I've started to give it up, I start to just, like, what's in my soul that feels like I have to have it, and I'm wronged if I don't have it? I've become entitled to it. There's nothing wrong with coffee. It's a good gift. But the simple act of giving it up, something happens in me where I feel like I'm, I'm being treated unjustly by myself, so I can just go and hit the button and I can have a cup. No one's taking this away from me. It's a luxury that's perfectly available to me. But I notice, why do I feel entitled to this thing? And not only am I entitled to it, I've become enslaved to it. The same thing can be true with alcohol. The same, same thing can be true with a certain type of food. The same thing can be true with a certain friendship or a certain relationship or, or TV or Netflix or whatever it is that you enjoy. And fasting from that can help to protect you from becoming mastered by it from becoming enslaved to it. And it'll help to reveal to you, are you more satisfied in God, the giver of the good gifts, or in the good gifts that he gives? You can't separate the two, right? I mean, part of why we're satisfied in God and we love God for who he is because of what he does, I think sometimes it's, it's too weighted, right? We're like, yeah, God is good. 
and man, I love this life that I have and all the things that, he given, that he's given me and I kind of forget about God because I'm so busy playing with his gifts. It's like a kid on Christmas Day. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for these gifts and they're gone for hours. And Mom and Dad are like, oh, I miss my kids. I want to spend some time with them. Lastly, we need to just spend a couple minutes here. I know it's getting long. Spend a couple minutes on this last point. We fast because it grows our hunger for the eternal feast to come. And this is the most important point of all of them. Where we turn it back to Jesus and where we're going to break our fast by taking communion in just a minute. But we fast because it grows our hunger for the eternal feast that is yet to come. Track with me here. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. Jesus with the disciples... They come to him. In verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him. So John the Baptist had followers, disciples, people who he was teaching. They were listening to him. They come to Jesus. And they say, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They're asking Jesus this question. Your followers, you're a rabbi, your followers, they don't fast, but we fast, and the Pharisees fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus, in this metaphor, here is the bridegroom. Saying, I'm, I'm among my people. Like, at a wedding celebration, you feast. It's a time for feasting. It's a time for enjoyment. So Jesus answers, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus is saying, my disciples don't fast right now because we're with each other. I'm present. I'm in their midst but there will come a day when I'm crucified. And then when I, overcome and, when I overcome sin and death in the grave on Easter morning, I conquer death and sin and I give you new life. And then I will ascend back to heaven and my disciples will miss my presence. They won't be able to touch my body anymore. They won't be able to, to audibly hear my voice very often, even though he would speak auditorily to them some from heaven. But the physical presence, the physical manifestation, the physical Messiah will be gone, and then they will fast. That applies to you and I. Jesus, where is he? He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's given us his spirit, but Jesus in, in physical form is not present with us, and so this is a day and an age for fasting. Both feasting and fasting, but again, we're good at feasting. We're not so good at fasting. Jesus says, when I'm taken from them, then they will fast. Flip over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 26 through 29. This is in the upper room, the day before Jesus was crucified. It says, and now they were eating, fasting, feasting. I mean, they're, they're feasting together all the time. Keep feasting. Now they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the key. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it, new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Remember in, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said that the disciples don't fast now when he's there, but when he's taken from them, then they will fast because they will long for him to return. They will long for his presence. They will long to hear his voice more clearly. They will long for this intimate relationship with him. And now, in the Last Supper, the, the original communion, Jesus is sharing bread and wine with his disciples, and he's saying, I will not drink of this again until we're together. Because it's a time for mourning. Because Jesus longs to be with us. This is incredible. Jesus longed to be with the disciples and he longs to be with you in person. Jesus himself is fasting currently from the marriage supper of the Lamb, waiting for you to be with him when he will eat and drink with you. Isn't that amazing? We ultimately fast to, to grow in us a hunger for this day when we will be reunited to Jesus in person and we will sit at a banquet table with him and we will enjoy the greatest feast of all time with the greatest wine, the greatest food that's ever been had. I love Fogo de Chao. Any of you been there? That's nothing like the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's like McDonald's compared to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus is fasting. He's abstaining from this wine until we're with him in paradise. Lastly, flip over to Revelation 19 to get a picture of what this meal looks like. Then we're going to go into communion and, and worship, and you can take communion remembering this truth that Jesus is abstaining from this until he's with you, but he's given you this as a reminder. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. This is the prophecy of John, the vision that John had of the end times. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The supper that Jesus is abstaining from. The supper that he is fasting. He's waiting for that day and he's currently fasting. We take this communion cup as a reminder that Jesus is longing to be with us, inviting us to, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says, And he said to me, These are the, the true words of God, that I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. This is the angel speaking. And he said, But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And so, church family, we're invited to once again worship God as we take communion, as we sing this last song, being reminded that Jesus has invited us to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that he's given us this little meal as a reminder that we will have this great feast with him for all of eternity. And he so longs to be with you that he is fasting now as he waits for that day. Amen? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving us this meal as a reminder of the meal to come.
Lord, even this morning as we take communion and take this little tasteless wafer and drink this little prepackaged juice, I pray that it would be like a little cheap appetizer reminding us of the glorious feast we will have with you for all of eternity when you return or call us home. Jesus, I thank you that you love us in spite of our fastlessness. But Lord, I pray that you would inspire us and equip us to be a people who fast for our spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical health and as we long to be reunited with you for all of eternity. We love you, Jesus. Have your way among us. In your name we pray. Amen.